Hi friends, my name is Jeremy McCandless. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And here we are in episode 10 of our season 3, and we're now working through the Gospel of Matthew. This is a second of a couple of days we're spending looking at the text from Matthew 13 to 23 and asking what a baby can teach us, what this baby can teach us. So if you're joining us for the first time, you are very welcome. Welcome to share this journey through the whole Bible. So with that in mind, we'll jump straight into the text and I'll see you at the end just to update you and give you a little bit of information about some stuff we're doing. Bye for now. Okay, we're going to pick up the rest of the story where we left off last time. And we'll do that from verse 16. Where it tells us, When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in the vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So the word translated outwitted, or sometimes deceived, depending on its translation you're reading, has an air of mockery about it. Herod was angry, and he was angry because they didn't just deceive him, but because they had left him feeling tricked and probably a little bit sort of mocked. He had told the wise men to go out and to come back, and they hadn't returned. Now remember, Herod was a diabolical despot. Let me just remind you and give you some further insight to sort of tip you off to what a cruel man this was. When he was dying, five days before he died, he had another one of his sons killed. And at that time, he also had some of the elite of Jerusalem rounded up incarcerated and then he commanded that when he had died they should all be killed. His reasoning was that he said that when he died he wanted the whole city to be in mourning and to cry. He said when I die nobody's going to cry as a matter of fact there's a chance they'll have a party so I want all these other people killed so that the city will shed tears when I die. That's an insight into the kind of person this guy was. And now he's really angry because the wise men were supposed to come back and tell him where the baby was so he could worship them. Yeah, right. He just wanted to kill Jesus. So here's what he does. He issues this proclamation that all male children under two years of old are to be put to death. All the male children who are in Bethlehem and in the surrounding districts, two years and under, And that time he has worked out, he's determined because of the time frame given to him by the wise men of the appearing of the star. So he's just thought, you know, I'll get this all covered by making sure I get this new king by having all babies who are under two years old killed. Now, of course, the first thing I'm sure you want to know is how many babies they were killed in this slaughter. And the answer, truthfully, is nobody knows. Bethlehem itself was a small town, but just how much further beyond the perimeter in the region of Bethlehem he went isn't exactly clear. But what does this terrible, terrible story tell us? Well, very simply, it says to us, on a spiritual level, 
the world today because the world has always wanted to kill Jesus Christ. It wants to destroy him. And if you are one of his children, one of his followers, then they might indeed have the same attitude towards you. Let me quote something Jesus said in John chapter 15. These are the words of Jesus himself. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Here's the spiritual reality, friends. On one hand, God loves you, so revel in that, rejoice in that truth. But then understand that when you step out into the world, you will discover if you are a follower of Christ. Even if you just want to be a good person, the world will want to destroy you. And that is because the world are not motivated by God. They are motivated by the God of this world, who is Satan himself. The world has always hated God's Son, and we, being followers of him, will mean that the world will hate us. We're seeing it more and more particularly in the workplace. In the West, it may be just a mild discrimination against Christians, but in some parts of the world, it is open hostility and persecution. They are persecuting people simply because they are believers in Jesus Christ. And that has never been truer than it is before. So here's the point of this passage. In the midst of hostility, you need to remember that God loves you. Let me amplify this just a bit. He's not going to stop the bad stuff, but know that he loves you. He doesn't prevent all the pain, but he loves you. He does not always step out to miraculously remove you out of the hurt, but he does still love you. And you need to learn this because if you follow the Lord, that is going to be a true experience in at least part of your life anyway. When you hit opposition or maybe even hostility, or out-and-out hatred, or even just when you're confronted with the natural life events like the death of a loved one, it is imperative that you remember that the name of that place that you are currently inhabiting, well, it's just the name of the station. It's not the destination on the line. In the midst of pain and sorrow, know that God loves you. And this is proved for us in this passage from John 15, where it records the words of Jesus himself saying that this is how it's going to be. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2 and pick up in verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And then it quotes that. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So like I say, this is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And again, it's what we call a type. This is typology. In this case, Rachel, who died in childbirth, is described in Jeremiah as weeping for all those children who are going into captivity. And again, Matthew is saying this is a type. And these events can be used as an illustration of what happens to us, or even if we just feel that we are being hated or persecuted. But remember, this passage starts with God taking 
his son here taking the Messiah, the infant baby Jesus, out of danger, removing him from it and putting him into Egypt. So let's pick up the text in verse 19. After Herod died, take that on board, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Go, take up the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are now dead. So he got up and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But it was there he heard that Herod Archelaus, now that's the son of Herod, and remember this is very much like father, like son. When the Jewish people gathered in the temple to have a remember service for some of the people his father had killed, he killed them. He massacred 3,000 faithful Jewish believers. So clearly, can't go back to Israel, he can't go to Judah. Verse 22, he was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod. So that's where Herod Archelaus is. So clearly, Joseph can't return with his family to Judah. Anyway, it continues. He's reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. Having been warned in the dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now here's a problem. The word Nazarene or Nazareth never appears in the Old Testament. So we ask the question, which prophet has been quoted here? There's no prophet who says anything like this. So what is he talking about in this passage? Well, if you look at the passage carefully, he didn't say he was quoting a prophet. He says prophets, plural. So what's the point? Well, the point is that many of the prophets spoke about that the Messiah would be despised. And that was the key here. Prophets, plural, meant a number of them were talking and predicting about uh, something bigger in the sense they were talking about the Messiah being despised. Now, during the lifetime of Christ, the city of Nazareth was looked down upon. In John chapter 1, which tells the story of Nathanael, when they say, we have found the Messiah, he says, and in verse 46, and I quote, Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So the big point here is that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be despised. So by saying that he has come out of Nazareth, which was a despised city region, it's using that as an expression to say the prophets talked about that he would come out of this despised place. It's just a bit like us today describing someone as behaving like someone from another region of a country or another nation where it is commonplace to use that as an example of a despised people or an uneducated people or a people that you would naturally look down on. So has anything ever good come out of Nazareth was their expression? Well the Messiah comes out of Nazareth in this story and of course he like the region of Nazareth was despised he was from Nazareth the Messiah of God came from this despised place he hadn't come from Jerusalem he hadn't risen up from Rome the great city of power he was from Nazareth so it seems to me that one of the spiritual truths in this passage is that if you're following Christ, you might just expect to experience what he did. You might very well be despised. I wonder if you've ever had anyone look down at you because you were a Christian. 
some of the feeling I get from people on occasion is something along the lines of, Christians are stupid. You call yourself educated, you think you're intelligent, then why, why, or why are you a Christian? Or another common accusation thrown at believers is, Christianity is something that is for weak people, people who need a crutch to get through life. Lots of us experience that kind of way of being despised. And these are the kind of things that are hurled at people all the time who call themselves Christians. So don't think it's strange that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you are a Christian, then that's what you're going to experience also. Now, I just want to wrap up what I've said, what I believe I've said or tried to say on this passage over this last couple of days. And I think I've said three main things. Number one, overarching perspective is the big spiritual truth in this passage is to help you understand that God loves you and wants to protect you. The second is that the world hates and despises Jesus and thereby also Christians today. One of Matthew's great purposes in writing this gospel account is to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of the Old Testament. And the way he does that and will be seen to do it is that he's constantly saying that this part or that part of Jesus's life fulfilled this or that Old Testament prophecy. And here in this short passage, he does it three times in just the one passage. And he's going to do it again and again and again throughout this entire book. Now, the other thing you need to know, and this is a little subtle, is that by the nature of the selection of the material that Matthew chooses to put in his book, he's always trying to encourage people. Encourage people who had come out of a Jewish background and accepted Christ as the Messiah. This is because those who would have originally received this gospel account were beginning to experience hostility. They too were starting to be hated and despised. It was written to a Jewish audience just a short time after they had seen or at least heard about Christ being crucified. So it's very possible that the original recipients of this were experiencing very real opposition and even persecution. So Matthew is deliberately selecting stories to encourage them. And this short passage we've covered this last couple of days is one of those. Jesus was hated, so don't be surprised that you might be hated. Jesus was despised, and don't be surprised that the same thing might happen to you. But this is only the beginning of Matthew's Gospel account. And do you remember Mary, in the very first story of Matthew's Gospel, Mary faced the potential of being left disgraced by Joseph. There were probably people, and I'm sure there are people listening today, as then, who can really identify with that. I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to this who have faced the distinct possibility of being disowned by their own families. And here we have the extreme high point of that type of persecution where we see the potential for all the main infants in the Bethlehem region to be slaughtered. And Jesus himself is only saved by the escape of the family to Egypt. But the great spiritual lesson for all of us who describe ourselves as followers of Christ is that in spite of all this, we must remember that God loves us. I want to pursue this a little further and a little deeper because I really want to try and equip any of you out there who are handling or trying to handle 
challenging events in their lives or any of us who will face them in the future. And let me just say a couple of things. If you take a hard-nosed, realistic look at life, one of the things you're going to discover is that times you're going to face hostility and rejection, opposition. And those type of things often come through people who are spiritually opposed to you because they're opposed to any idea of a God who has a moral agenda for their lives. Then on top of that, you will experience the natural difficulties of life. You are definitely going to experience pain, sorrow, tears, And you'll experience that all the more if you choose to love and care for anybody else. This is a wicked, wicked world. And it's important for me and for you to see this passage and know that God isn't necessarily going to stop all those suffering, but he loves you and he wants to bring you through and provide a safe passage through it. We live in a truly wicked world, folks. I could have never imagined when I was growing up And I grew up in a place where terrorism was commonplace. But I don't really think I would would have ever imagined that one day I would see people blow themselves up and deliberately kill innocent young men and women, not in the name of a political ideology, but in the name of God. People's lives are full of trouble and it doesn't get any easier. But I've got some good news for you. In the midst of all this, there is an anchor that keeps us safe and secure. When bad things are happening to you, don't think of it as he's God doing something to you. Remember that God loves you and he's doing something for you. He's helping you find a way through. He's protecting you in ways you probably don't even know or appreciate. And he may indeed, in fact, be fulfilling scripture in your life in the ways that you might not be aware of. And throughout it all, he still loves you. And by accepting that fact, you are in fact responding in the way God planned for you to respond, allowing you thereby to grow spiritually through the trial. So what does that really mean? How does that really help us? Well, I believe it means that you can look your future square, straight in the eye, eyeball to eyeball. You can look at the world in all its ugliness and still rejoice in the fact that you know God loves you and God's going to take care of you. And if nothing else, at the very least, God is going to teach you through this and that is going to be good for you in the long run. It may not feel at the time, but God is working to create good for you in the longer term in all and every situation. Many years ago, a lady named Gladys Aylward, who worked for the same missionary society as my father did, she visited a small village in China that it was attacked by bandits. They had a missionary placed in that village and the house where he lived was raided and set in fire. Shortly afterwards, when she was being shown round the devastation by the missionary, the missionary said, look, they even burned my Bible and my hymn book. And as she looked in the rubble, her eyes landed on one page that had been left just lying there amongst the debris. And it was a page that had a fragment from a missing hymn. That one page had survived and on the one page she saw the words, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And Gladys Aylward said that that was an image she carried around in her head for the rest of her life. And that's the picture I want you to see next time you're struggling. 
Next time you look at the situation and just see devastation and destruction, imagine in your mind's eye that house burnt to the ground and nothing left except right in the middle of the ashes a page with the word, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And what a blessing that can be if you know that the Lord has come into your life. So no matter how bad it gets, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how painful it is, you can rejoice in the fact that God loves you and he's not doing something to you. He's doing something for you to bring you through because he loves you so very much. Sometimes we look at the world and we see all the hate that's going on and we wonder where God is. And we look at the things that happen even in our own lives and we wonder, where are you, Lord? What are you doing? But then we can choose to look at the cross. Then we can be reminded that God loves us and he gave his son to die for us. And he has given us his Holy Spirit and he has given us his word and he has given us the reassurance that nothing can separate us from his love. And for that we can be thankful. And we can always remember this in the days to come, especially in the difficult days. We can remember that God loves us and he is always doing what's best for us and that in him truly all things, all things can work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Okay, friends, I hope you find that helpful. If you're new to this journey, then why not consider making a commitment to make the study of the Bible, not just the reading of the Bible, the study of the Bible, part of the rhythm of your daily lives. By subscribing wherever you receive your podcasts from and following us along every day on this journey. And if you're interested, there's lots of extra resources for you to access. I always put a complete transcript of approximately what I've said in the episode notes. Again, doesn't matter where you're receiving it from, just go in there and you'll find the transcript. It's copyright free in the public domain for you to use in whatever way you want. And alongside that, there's some links to some other stuff on the Facebook page, YouTube channel, even my LinkedIn, where I put some more formal structured discipleship courses. There's currently one going on for the next 12 weeks which uh, I hope will help encourage and equip people who feel they're called to preach and give you a very, giving a very basic overview of how to prepare sermons. And all of them are free at point of access. There is also a way in the episode notes that if you feel called by God, you can partner uh, and support this ministry. But that's obviously if you specifically feel God's calling to do that and that you are first and foremost supporting your local church. But what would be really helpful and would really encourage me is if you would consider sharing the links to this podcast on your social media pages. So get this, the word of God and the teaching of it out into those corners of the internet that you already exist. But anyway, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you right back here tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.